voters matter. This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Does our polarized politics leave anyone left in the middle? In fact, most Americans' political views fall between the opinions of Democratic and Republican elites. And that's not because they don't understand politics in the same way. Most Americans' views are well summarized by the ideological continuum from the left to the right. They're just somewhere in the middle. This week, I talked to Anthony Fowler of the University of Chicago about his co-authored American Political Science Review article, Moderates. They distinguish between true moderates and those giving opinions that don't line up with the left-right spectrum at all, or can be better explained with more than one ideological dimension. They find that true moderates matter for election outcomes. Although they participate a bit less, they are the swing voters. We also discuss his Quarterly Journal of Political Science article, Partisan Intoxication or Policy Voting. He finds that many claims about the power of partisan identity to voters could be explained instead by selecting on policy grounds. Perhaps we're not giving voters enough credit. Here's our conversation. If you could just okay. start with a, a summary of your recent article, uh, pithily titled, titled Moderates. What did you find and what were the big takeaways? Sure. Yeah, I wrote that article with a great team of co-authors. Let me make sure I remember all of them. It includes uh, Seth Hill and Jeff Lewis and Lynn Babrick, Chris Warshaw and Chris Sasanovich. Uh, the, the six of us worked together, which six is not, not the ideal number probably, but it was great to have, have such, a, such a great team to work with. We, um, one of the things we sought out to understand was um, we know there are a lot of people in surveys who give a mix of liberal and conservative answers to policy questions. And we wanted to understand, are those people genuinely moderate? Are they actually ideologically in the middle? Or are they just kind of conflicted? Maybe they're very liberal on some issues and very conservative on some issues. Or are they just not even paying attention to the survey questions? Are they just giving kind of random answers? And so, um, and so our goal was to try to look at the data and with the available data, try to see if we could come up with a strategy that would distinguish between those different possibilities. And it turns out that the vast majority of people do have opinions that are well summarized by a single ideological dimension. Um, something like three quarters of a, three quarters of survey respondents are well summarized by that one dimension. And if we look at their ideological scores, they look more or less like a normal distribution with most people close to the middle. And so most Americans, our kind of conclusion is that most Americans, you know, do have a coherent ideology. It's well summarized by a single dimension, and most of them are in the middle. So let's go through those uh, three types a little bit, um, kind of distinguish what a prototypical person might look like who's uh, truly in the middle versus someone whose uh, opinions aren't ideological at all versus someone uh, who's maybe liberal on social issues and uh, conservative on economic issues. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, that's, I mean, I mean, that is, that, that's the exact typology. You're right. And I think when you just observe that somebody sometimes gives liberal answers and sometimes gives conservative answers, it's hard to know which one, which, you know, which, 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 what, you know, which of those three possibilities explains their answers. Uh, our strategy was to essentially look at the pattern of responses across a bunch of questions. And, and, and there's different kinds of patterns that would be more or less consistent with, with those different typologies. So, you know, a simple example would be, um, suppose there were a bunch of questions about minimum wage. Suppose there was a question like, um, you know, should we raise the minimum wage to $9? Should we raise it to $10, $11? Suppose you had all those different questions. And so then every, you know, presumably most people, if they have like an ideal, you know, if they have a coherent ideology, most people will kind of answer this similarly to those questions in a predictable way, such that, um, if you answered if you answered yes to raising it to fifteen dollars, you probably also would answer yes to raising it to fourteen dollars. Um, 
And so, so you can imagine a particular pattern that would be consistent with someone being kind of explained by a coherent ideological dimension on just that one issue. And you could distinguish between the extreme liberals, extreme conservatives, and the people in the middle. Um, if somebody was just answering randomly, there might be no coherent pattern at all. Any pattern of responses would be equally likely. So they might say, they might say yes to 15, then no to 14, then yes again to 13. And although that there could be some strange set of preferences that's consistent with that, it's more likely that they're just kind of answering randomly and not paying close attention. And then if we bring in other issues, you could imagine that somebody is very liberal on, on minimum wage, but they turn out to be very conservative on abortion or vice versa. And that would be consistent with with this kind of, we have this kind of catch-all conversion category of people who are, they're giving real answers, but those answers are not well summarized by an ideological, a single ideological dimension. And roughly how many people fall into each of these categories and how do yeah. they compare to the uh, kind of fairly strict uh, conservatives and liberals? Yeah, it's something, I mean, so it's something like uh, three quarters are what we call Downsians that fit that one dimension. Maybe one fifth are these conversions who are giving real answers, but are not well summarized by a single dimension. And then very few people, maybe less than, you know, maybe one in 20 people are giving seemingly random answers that, that seem to suggest no pattern at all. And then of course, within the Downsians, we can then ask like among the Downsians, how many of those are liberal versus conservative versus moderate? It's obviously continuous distribution of ideology. So it's kind of all in, you know, in the eye of the beholder a little bit, but what you get is this very unimodal, mostly normal Gaussian distribution with most people close to the middle. You don't get this bipolar distribution that you would get if, say, you looked at members of Congress, which suggests that, you know, most people are, are close to the mean. So you mentioned that it would be ideal to have all these different minimum wage questions, but I know that you had to deal with the, the questions that people were asked, uh, and most of them were yes or no questions about policy proposals. So give us a sense of kind of how those were aligned um, across this liberal and conservative uh, spectrum. Were there examples where you really distinguished the the true liberals uh, or the true conservatives from, from other folks? Um, and, and what kinds of patterns did you usually see? What, what kinds of policy positions did, did these moderates have? Yeah, that's a good question. We did, you know, we do, in fact, uh, in, one, in one part of the paper, we actually were fortunate in that in one of these surveys, they actually did ask multiple minimum wage questions to the same respondents. And that was a nice way of validating our estimates and making sure that they were sensible and what you'd expect. Uh, but by and large, researchers don't do that. They don't ask 10 different versions of the abortion question with different cutting lines. And, and the, other, the other sort of tricky feature is that when survey researchers do ask these binary questions, they usually try to write the question in such a way that roughly 50% of the population will give a liberal answer and 50% will give a conservative answer. If you ask one where 85% give the liberal answer, survey, survey pollsters often think of that as a bad question. because we. But, um, but of course, those would actually be helpful for us in distinguishing the extreme liberals from the, from the you know, moderate liberals and so forth. Um, but, you know, there is still variation. I mean, there are, there are still questions where, say, 65% go one way and 35% go the other way, and they, they move around to different places. So our kind of, you know, the moderate, the moderate that we're thinking of is somebody who probably holds a moderate position across a lot of issues. And it might be hard to glean from any one survey response whether they're moderate, but you look at their pattern across lots of questions, and you see that they tend to give the conservative answer when the conservative answer is a little bit more popular in the general population. And they tend to give the liberal answer when that one's a little bit more popular, suggesting that they really are close to the middle. And had you asked the question a slightly different way, they might have changed, they might have changed their answer. So they probably, you know, they want taxes to be somewhere in between what Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi want. They want the minimum wage to be somewhere in between. 
Um, they want, you know, and so you, you kind of go down the line of things. Um, it's not hard to imagine such a person, but we don't often ask questions that would easily identify those people unless in our case, we have a lot of questions where we can, where we can kind of sort this out. And what's the relationship between these uh, policy moderates that you've identified uh, and self-identification as a moderate or uh, on international scales, even if you don't ask liberal, conservative or, or moderate, but you just ask, are you on the left or the right or 10 point scale or seven point scale? There are a lot of people who place themselves in the middle. Um, are those the same people uh, who are giving this uh, mix of opinions? I think by and large, there's there's a very strong correspondence between the self-reported ideology and and the ideologies that we infer from from people's policy positions. Um, we do look at that. We look, you know, I mean, not surprisingly, the people who self-identify as independent or moderate are much more likely to come out as kind of Downsian moderates in our you know in our analysis. Um, I'm sure you know there are definitely some mismatches. There are definitely some people who probably think of themselves as liberal or conservative that end up looking pretty moderate on our scale, and some vice versa. But by and large, the correspondence is pretty good. Such as if you just used, say, someone who identifies as independent or moderate as a proxy, you would do a pretty good job of identifying those people who really are in the middle on policy. Um, and I think a lot of political scientists have previously argued that the ideology question, say, in the NES is not very meaningful and that, that they don't have a lot of faith in that. But if you look, you know, if you just look at the data, it does a pretty good job of predicting where people would come out in, on our measure. So um, w one reason that, that people have been somewhat skeptical of that um, liberal conservative spectrum is because there have tended historically, at least to be a lot of people who place themselves on the center right of, of the ideological scale, but give policy positions uh, that are uh, more center left. Um, so they say that they're a slight conservative, but they, you know, favor increased spending in, in most areas. And I know you don't have um, the same kind of scale on the policy side, but can you say anything uh, ab about that? Are there uh, people who um, might self-identify on the right and might uh, have policy positions that look a little more left? Or does the center of your scale kind of correspond more to center-left policy positions? Yeah, that's a good question. We are mostly thinking of, of your ideological placement as being relative to the rest of the population. And so it could be the case that the moderates that we're identifying actually do favor, you know, a little bit more government spending, things like that. We haven't looked at that question very closely. I will say that there is kind of, and I, you know, I'm going to I'm going to sound like a like a conspiracy theorist or something, like a Fox News guest. And there's there is kind of a liberal bias in most uh, in most political science survey questions. Uh, the the liberal answer, the progressive answer, is usually the more popular uh, answer. And and I, you know, it's not this is not this is not a topic that we've delved into closely, but it's just something we notice in the process of working on this project. And I don't know if that's because the liberal position is indeed just more popular among the people in the middle of American society, or if these questions are written by mostly liberal academics who write the question in such a way that the liberal answer just kind of sounds like the sounds like the better one. But had had conservatives written the questions, maybe maybe we'd be talking about the opposite pattern. I don't have a strong view on that, but I'm just we, we that is something we noticed and we. We are mostly thinking about ideologies being relative to other people in the population rather than relative to some to some kind of benchmark that we have in mind. 
So you also find that uh, people who are consistently or more consistently on the left or right uh, side of the, the spectrum are more likely to participate. Uh, they're more interested in politics uh, and uh, they're more knowledgeable about politics. Um, so that does seem to be some evidence that we might hear from them more often uh, and we might gain uh, kind of our uh, perspective on uh, the public more from these, these people who are on the left or, or right side. So um, give us a sense of uh, what you think the implications of those findings are and, and maybe a little bit on the causal direction is this that once people become informed and involved and engaged in politics um, they they pick a side uh, or uh, is it that those people who pick a side are the ones that we hear from yeah that's a great question uh, you're absolutely right there is a correlation I will say the moderates do participate they do vote they're not you know they're not completely uninvolved in the political process, they do vote and they are a very electorally important group. We actually show that they're perhaps the most electorally consequential group. But you're absolutely right that the extreme yeah, ideological extremes. Just to clarify, that's because they change sides often, right? Not because that's they right, that's participate right. at high rates. Okay. That's right. They're, they're, so they participate at lower rates, but they still do participate and they're willing to change their votes. They're willing to switch the parties they support depending on which candidate they think is more competent or more moderate, etc. And so they, they do turn out to be perhaps the most consequential group for elections. But if you just look at if you just look at sheer rates of participation, if you look at and I'm sure if you looked at, say, social media usage and, and, and you know, how, how loud those voices are, if you looked at donations, all of those things, the ideological extremists are much more more likely to be uh, participating in democracy in those ways. And so when you when you go on social media, when you turn on cable news, I'm sure if you also looked at journalists, you'd find that journalists tend to be more ideologically extreme than the general public as well. That it gives this impression that that everyone is that there's so much polarization out there and that everyone is fighting each other and Democrats and Republicans hate each other. And I think that's by and large a wrong impression. I think if you look at the, the broad survey of the whole population, you would find that most people are in the middle and most people think most people probably aren't that happy with either the Democratic or Republican Party. Um, and they don't they don't, don't by and large hate each other and they don't by and large disagree with each other so much. So I think there is this this big uh, disconnect between what you would think from, say, looking at social media or cable news and what's actually going on in the American public. Um, as far as the direction of causation, it's, I think it's a really interesting question. I obviously I haven't seen a really compelling study that gets at that either way. If I had to guess, I would guess it mostly goes in the direction of extremism leading to more participation rather than participation leading to extremism. Um, I mean, if I, if, I think of, if I think of a few bits of evidence that, that inform that opinion, you know, Australia, for example, has compulsory voting. That's one case I've, I've written a paper on compulsory voting. I don't think you see drastically more polarization or more extremism in Australia just because you, you compel people to vote or you highly incentivize them to vote. You don't see people all of a sudden becoming more partisan than they are in other countries. Um, I just and if I just think about it from introspection for a second, it's hard for me to imagine a moderate who is kind of forced to forced to vote all of a sudden becoming more extreme, whereas it's pretty easy for me to imagine someone who already has extreme views feeling so strongly about something that they they have to get out there, they have to vote, they have to donate, they have to scream on social media and so forth. That direction of causality just makes more sense to me. But I would love to see I would love to see some studies on this to, to better answer that question. 
So as you mentioned, you also find that the moderates um, are more likely to respond to, to candidate uh, factors in elections. Um, the candidate ideology is in, included uh, in that, and, and that makes sense. Um, uh, but talk through that finding, but also connect uh, your experience findings. Why is it that the moderates are also uh, more attracted to incumbents and experienced uh, candidates? Sure. Yeah. The moderate, I mean, the moderates are the ones who are the most indifferent between Democrats and Republicans on policy. And of course, we know that the Democratic and Republican candidates in a typical, typical election in the U.S. are quite far from each other ideologically. So if you're, so if you're a liberal um, or a conservative, you probably know which way you're going to go. And the difference in terms of the quality of the candidates or the competence of the candidates or some other valence characteristic would have to be so big for you to, for you to change your vote. Um, I'm sure I'm sure a lot of listeners can even relate to this themselves. Maybe, you know, I've I've certainly had the experience of voting in an election in Illinois where I'm pretty unhappy with my incumbent Democrat and and maybe kind of been tempted to vote for the other candidate. And then you look at the other candidate and they're just so far from you on ideology that you say, OK, am I really going to vote for the other candidate? And maybe, you know, maybe you're not happy with that. But you're just if you if you are a little bit to one side of the ideological spectrum, you're just you're probably not going to change the party you support. Not because you don't care about those other things, but because you'd have to sacrifice so much on the policy dimension to, 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 to vote on some other dimension. Whereas the moderates, they are closest to being indifferent between the Democratic and Republican candidate, typically on policy, which means they can put more weight on things like competence and experience and so forth. And so, so empirically, that's exactly what we find. We find that these moderates, they're most willing to change their votes, change the party they support between elections, and they're most responsive to things like the ideologies of the candidates, of course, but also non-ideological characteristics that matter to them, like experience and incumbency. And, and I'm sure if we had better measures of quality, we could, we, we could see this happening in other realms as well. Um, but they're the ones that are, that are voting for the high quality candidates. They're the ones that are contributing most to selection and accountability because, because they're ideologically close to being indifferent between the Democratic and Republican. So uh, talk through that that research a little bit, because I know that uh, people will be familiar with just, you know, you look at people who say they voted for different presidential candidates and you find that correlation. But you have a more extensive analysis um, in congressional elections. So how, how do you show that these moderate voters are responding to these candidate characteristics? Yeah, we have um, we have data from basically a full decade or a full redistricting cycle of, of congressional elections of U.S. House elections. And we also have some reasonably good data on characteristics of these candidates. We obviously know who's an incumbent. We know who had prior political experience. And we have measures of the ideologies of the candidates as inferred from campaign contributions. So, but, you know, this is, this, is, this is largely work done by other people, but we can, we can infer how, how far left or right each of these candidates are based on who their contributors are. And, when, and so we have these different measures of, you know, the characteristics of these candidates, and we can see how do voters on average respond to those characteristics. So, so we have our CCS survey data. Um, we can kind of construct a panel where we look at the same, you know, a bunch of voters in the same district, how they change their votes over time. And we can see on average how responsive are people to things like experience, incumbency, ideological moderation. And, and on average, there is a pretty strong relationship there for all of those. And then we can look across different types of people and we've categorized these different types of people using our method where we've got, say, Downsian liberals and Downsian conservatives, Downsian moderates, our conversions and the inattentive group. And we can ask, how responsive are these different groups relative to one another? And by and large, it's the conversions and the Downsian moderates that are the ones that are changing their votes and they're responding to the characteristics of the candidates, whereas the, the ideologues are by and large uh, mostly supporting the same party the whole 
So you also uh, look at the demographic uh, correlates of, of moderation and you find that uh, women, racial minorities, uh, young people, uh, the, the non-rich and the less educated uh, are all more likely to be moderates. Um, so what does that kind of demographic pattern uh, tell you? How does that align with uh, people's perceptions of, of who's a moderate uh, in, in the U.S.? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure if I had strong predictions about who would end up looking the most moderate uh, demographically. I think um, by and large, you know, American politics scholars have spent a lot of time studying the correlates of being liberal versus conservative. And they, they've studied the correlates of, you know, participating more or less in politics. They haven't, there aren't a lot of studies on the correlates of being in the middle, but it could be that there are, there is in fact kind of a unique subset of people who are just much more likely to be in the middle. And I think it is, it is interesting that it is, you know, it's, it's younger people are more likely to be in the middle. Um, racial minorities are a little bit more likely to be in the middle and so forth. We could have maybe guessed some of this based on other things we knew about what's correlated with being liberal versus conservative and what's correlated with participating more in politics. But, but by and large, I didn't have any strong expectations about this. I think that's interesting. And I think, I think demographics are always going to be a pretty crude measure of who actually comes out to be in the middle. But I, I think it would be great to see politicians exert more effort to try to identify those people in the middle and, and target their campaigns for those people, because those are, those are important people that, um, that should, in fact, be catered to. So you also uh, pursue a two-dimensional model, um, and you find at, at least that there's some people who, who may uh, be uh, better explained by that two-dimensional model, but, but not, not by a lot. So say a little bit about that analysis, if you're able to define those, those dimensions uh, at all. And, um, you know, is this, it, what does it mean that, that kind mm -hmm. of we're increasingly, or, or that we are at least currently, uh, unidimensional? Yes. So, you know, like I said, we have, you know, roughly three quarters of the population is well summarized by one dimension. And then we have roughly another fifth that is uh, that looks like this conversion category that looks like they don't fit the one dimensional model very well. And one question was, how many of those people might just be roughly two dimensional people? Of course, these are, you know, these are these are these are just these are just models. We're not you know, we're not. No, nobody's exactly a one dimensional or two dimensional person. Um, but we're trying to understand to what extent can we understand people's responses by, you know, by these different ideological dimensions. And so one of the things we did to assess that question was re-estimate a version of our model with two ideological dimensions instead of one. And indeed, you do find that um, you do find that the estimated share of conversions goes down when you do that, suggesting that at least some of those conversions are probably people who are well summarized by two dimensions rather than one. But it's not that their, their preferences are completely idiosyncratic. And if you if you just look at some of those, you know, the question responses, it does look like there's a big chunk of Americans who are more or less described as being conservative, maybe not really conservative, but moderately conservative on social policy and moderately liberal on economic policy. They end up being classified as conversions by our model, but they're pretty well summarized by that that two dimensional summary that I just gave. And we're observing, you know, this unidimensionality um, potentially at the end of a, of a process. There's uh, some historical research that suggests that, uh, you know, the mapping of these two dimensions or other dimensions onto the one um, sort of took a while. And there's debates about the extent to which it was driven by kind of political elite coalition building um, or something related to partisanship. So I guess what do you think about that uh, as a 
as I don't know if it's an alternative explanation, but just the idea that that you've observed it at the time when this fits together, but it fits together because of the way that political elite coalitions have have fit these issue positions together. Yeah, that's a great question. I think you're absolutely right that for some of these issues, it's not obvious how they should go together. It's not completely obvious that your views on abortion policy would be so strongly correlated with views views on, say, tax policy or something like that. Um, and yet that's that's the way it looks in, in the U.S. Not not entirely. Of course, there are these exceptions like we just talked about, but uh, but there are these strong correlations. And a lot of people speculate that that is because of elite behavior, that that people are kind of taking cues from elites and party leaders and so forth. And I'm sure that is right to some extent. There is a lot of good research on this topic. I'm sure you've, you've covered a lot of this research on the show. Um, I would say that, but that some of that research is kind of mixed, that there is very clear evidence of, of what you might call, you know, you know, learning and opinion change or issue projection, you know, party cue effects and so forth. There is clear evidence of that, although most of the evidence of that is on issues that are kind of lower salience issues. So, you know, think of Gabe Lenz's great paper. Uh, one of his cases is on Social Security privatization during the 2000 presidential election. I think that's a great, you know, it's a great paper. It's a great design. That's a great result. Social security privatization is not the most salient issue to most Americans, and that may be precisely the kind of issue where you'd expect to see lots of, you know, lots of projection or lots of kind of following of leaders, whereas I haven't seen any really compelling evidence that people are just doing whatever the party leaders tell them to do on, say, on, say, taxes or things that are things that are really core to their interests. Um, Michael Tesler has a really nice paper where he looks at looks for the same kind of thing across a bunch of issues. And again, you see you see this kind of opinion change on some issues and not on other issues. And maybe it is well summarized by kind of well explained by what are the issues that people tend to care about the most. So so I'm sure there's a little bit of both. I'm sure some of these issues do kind of just naturally go together in people's minds. And some of the one dimensionality is a result of of elites and cues and, and so forth that's been happening over decades. And it's hard to tease out exactly how much. Uh, but I generally don't look at the one dimensionality and say, oh, look at all these naive sheep out there who just do whatever the party leaders tell them to do. And one reason I say that is because almost nobody does what the party leaders tell them to do. Most people are in the middle. And so you know, most people are in the middle on they're in the middle on economics and they're in the middle on moral questions and so forth. So almost nobody is just kind of naively following the party leaders. It just so happens that that people who are moderate on one issue tend to be moderate on another issue, too. So you also have this uh, QG, QJPS uh, article where you kind of go through um, some of this uh, distinction between the, the possibility of policy voting uh, and, and partisan voting. Um, so wh why is it so hard to kind of tell those uh, uh, things apart and, and what do you do to try to do so? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is this is such a big, you know, such a big literature, this idea that partisanship or identity or some kind of, you know, some kind of group attachment drives political behavior it goes at least back to at least back to the michigan school at least back to you know research starting in the 1950s and so forth and it's i think been such a such a common finding that everyone just accepted it as at face value it's like of course like party id drives vote choice if you open up an american politics textbook you'll see that people just say of course like your party identity determines who you vote for and i think i've always been kind of skeptical of this it, it, it's just never made a whole lot of sense to me like are you actually like, what are they even saying when they say this, you know, and I've, I've been at conferences where I've pushed people on this. And, and, and I think after years of doing this and being bothered enough, I thought like, okay, I'm going to write a review article about this. And, and essentially the, the idea was, let's take this claim seriously. And let's look at all the evidence that's put forth in favor of this kind of 
what, I'm, what I call the partisan intoxication hypothesis. And by and large, that, that evidence is just not very convincing. It doesn't distinguish between partisan identity driving vote choices and policy preferences determining vote choices. And the reason it doesn't is, of course, that party identity is very correlated with, with policy. If, you know, if, how do you answer the party ID, ID question? If somebody came along and said, which party do you identify with? You would, of course, just say whatever party you typically vote for. And the party you typically vote for is probably the party that you probably agree with most on policy. And so these things are all correlated with one another. And then, of course, political scientists observe, oh, my gosh, party ID is so correlated with vote choice. It must be that people have this arbitrary attachment to identity. No, like it could just be that party ID is just the way that, you know, is just the party you normally vote for that you normally agree with on policy. So so that was that's largely the point is that these are very difficult to distinguish between. Um, and I think it's irresponsible of us to go around saying, oh, look at these dumb Americans. They don't actually have real policy preferences. They just they just go vote with their arbitrary identity uh, when we don't have any evidence that it is an arbitrary identity. So the two uh, two of the cases that you focus on in, in that article, um, the 2016 election and especially the Southern uh, realignment uh, are typically um, uh chalked up to, to racial attitudes. Um, so I wanted to get your uh, sense of the relationship between sort of what you're calling policy views and maybe something that looks more uh, like group prejudice um, that, that might, they might both uh, combine those two uh, political uh, and, and social views. Um, and, and to what extent do you really think this, uh, this finding that uh, the Southerners were, were conservatives and, and made their way to the Republican Party um, should challenge uh, that widely held idea that the Southern realignment is about racial attitudes. Sure. I think, I mean, of course, I mean, of course, your racial attitudes do influence your policy preferences. So if there are a bunch of people who have taste based discrimination toward uh, black people, that will affect their policy positions on civil rights, you know, civil rights issues and so forth. And so in some sense, those things are intertwined. So, um, so I mean, one thing to say about that is just because vote choices are, if it is true that vote choices are largely determined by people's policy preferences, that doesn't necessarily paint a normatively positive story. That could be that people's policy preferences come from all kinds of bad places. So, um, so I'm not making a strong normative argument that I want to live in a world where, where policy, only policy matters and nothing else, because of course, uh, people's policy positions might not be very enlightened. So, so there is that obvious point. Um, but, but I think the Southern realignment is a good case that challenges the conventional wisdom about party identity, which is, you know, that the South was solidly democratic for many, many years. Southerners did identify strongly with the Democratic Party in surveys. They actually continued to identify strongly with the Democratic Party in surveys for, for several decades into the Southern realignment. But they switched and they voted for Republican presidential candidates when the parties changed positions on civil rights policies. That seems to suggest that they are willing to change their votes um, when, when the policy positions of the parties change, even if their, their kind of identity that they attached to the parties didn't change. So that seems like a challenging case for the people who want to say the party identity drives vote choice. Um, and so that's one, you know, that's a big reason why I talk about it in the book, because it's a nice, it's a rare opportunity where, where the, where the national party platform shifted so dramatically on an issue of importance to people so that you could actually see whether or not did people, did people change their vote choices to go along with their prior policy positions, or did people change their, you know, their partisan attachments to go along 
maybe I get that wrong. Did they change their vote choices to go along with their prior policy positions? Did they change their policy positions to go along with their prior, you know, partisan attachments? Um, so I thought that I think that's a nice illustrative example. And there's there's more to talk about there. You know, a lot of people will follow up and say, oh, but those those people those Southerners still voted for Democrats for lower offices. They still voted for Democratic governors and state legislators and members of Congress. And that's true, but that seems to be by and large because those other Democrats were pretty conservative Democrats. So they voted for the, and, and so I have some analysis of that in the paper as well. I look at, I look at um, voting in the U.S. House and I show that to the extent that Southerners continued voting for Democrats in the House, it was largely only voting for conservative Democrats. And as soon as those conservative Democrats retired and were replaced by more typical national Democrats, uh, that's when you see people really shifting toward the Republican Party congressional election. So um, so it looks like policy plays a very important role. Of course, people's policy preferences are not always enlightened and they're not always what we want them to be. I mean, of course, people inherently disagree on policy. That's, you know, that's that's the nature of the game. But uh, but the evidence clearly suggests that policy is playing a lot more of a role there than partisan identity per se. And so you don't, uh, it seems like both sides of the Southern realignment debate have actually uh, relied on partisan identity, the, the side that thinks that the change was di driven by racism, um, talks about racial attitudes uh, driving people toward the Republican Party, but even the, the side that doesn't think that uh, was true talks about racial identity was what was attracting people to the Democratic Party in the first place, and so it was the softening of that um, racial tie. So. Um, but it sounds like you want to sort of say all this is is put together and is not you don't want to try to distinguish uh, kind of the whether racial attitudes were the one piece of it or whether it's a broader conservatism across different kinds of policy issues. No, that's right. Yeah, no, there. I mean, I know that there there are interesting debates about that. Um, I'm not taking up that particular fight. I think to the extent that it, it must be it must be true that your racial attitudes do affect your broader policy views and perhaps vice versa. And so I'm thinking of all of those things as being being related to each other. And again, I'm not saying that voting on the basis of policy is always an enlightened thing to do. Of course, of course, of course, we disagree with people's policy positions sometimes. Um, I do. I mean, I do. I'll say one other thing about about the 2016 presidential election, which is, of course, that's also a, you know there's a ripe debate about to what extent were racial attitudes driving people's vote choices. There's a lot of good work on that. It does seem like. Attitudes about immigration was one of the strongest predictors of switching from uh, voting for Obama in 2012 to voting for Trump in 2016. And that was a big group of people. And so it seems like, you know, racial attitudes are in some way related related to that. And I do at least discuss that case in the paper. And I think I think it is important to say to academics that although although all of that is right, and I'm sure racial attitudes did play a role, just because someone voted for Donald Trump, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a racist or that they voted for, you know, voted for Trump for sort of bad reasons or for identity based reasons, things like that. Um, there are all kinds of reasons that somebody might have voted for Donald Trump uh, for non-racist reasons or for non-identity based reasons, including just they have different preferences over things like tax policy. That seems like an obvious point. And yet um, and yet I think a lot of people in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 presidential election looked at that and said, oh, it must be that. America is racist and it must be that they're all driven by identity and they're unthinking partisans and so forth. And, and I just don't find that to be very compelling. And I think a closer look at the data and, and with maybe some, some years of reflection, I think, I, I hope more people can agree with me on that. 
So in the initial um, converse discussion of, of ideologues, um, it's not just that they hold consistent positions, but that they have some kind of superstructure that they can articulate that is um, driving uh, their, their political uh, views. Um, and there are a lot of things uh, beyond just uh, ideological self-identification um, that, that people have looked at, um, such as core values like uh, traditionalism uh, and egalitarianism or personality traits like openness to, to new experience. Where do these kind of things fit in, in your view? Um, you know, you, you not just in policy voting, but in thinking about kind of what a moderate or what a liberal or conservative is, you know, is there anything that that is holding these views uh, uh, together? Uh, and is there any kind of piece in the middle that, that you think might be independently uh, important? So j just just to, I guess, uh, put out one one model, even if you had a full spectrum of policy views, often you can still help predict vote uh, if you add things to that, like identification and uh, some of these moral traditionalism and, and other kinds of superstructure are things we used mm -hmm. to think about were connected to those policy views. Yes, I'm sure I'm sure all of that's right. I think I mean it must be the case that almost everybody has they everybody has core principles of some kind. Like I I mean I you know, I don't buy into this, you know, this view that uh that people really have no ideology or something. Of course everyone has core views. Maybe they can't fully articulate them. Maybe they couldn't tell you like, oh yes, I'm an egalitarian or whatever you know, but they but they have these core values that are in fact largely determining how they think about policy. And they might, they might also be torn, of course, like they could, they could say, look, there's these competing considerations, I can see why I can see where the conservatives are coming from in this. And I can also see where the liberals are coming from on this. And that's why I end up being in the middle. And I think a lot of those people that Converse concludes are unsophisticated are in fact, just people in the middle. Um, he, I think a big reason why you observe a low correlation between you know, at least, you know, a lower correlation for regular members of the public than for than for elites in Converse's study is because there are a bunch of people in the middle who they might have given the conservative answer had the question been worded a little differently and they would have given the liberal answer had it been worded worded differently. So um, so I think these core these kind of core values are, of course, important to different people and they're turned up at different levels for different people. Some people, the liberals care more about some of them and conservatives care more about some of them. And the majority of people find themselves somewhere in the middle and find themselves you know, like they, they find both arguments to be persuasive a little bit. So, so I think that must be right. And to the extent that you can measure those core values uh, better than we can measure them through binary policy questions, I would expect them to, to strongly correlate with vote choice. Uh, and I think of that as all related. So um, a, lot of, a lot of political scientists seem to have this very narrow view of like ideology means a nominate score or something like that. And I, it obviously is more complicated than that. Ideology means some combination of like your core values and your beliefs that turn out to turn out to influence how you feel across a range of policies. The fact that ideology broadly um, is, is determining vote choices is different from saying, I can predict your vote choices perfectly with a single number. Um, and it turns out the single number does a pretty good job as we show in our paper. Uh, but of course, it's it's more complicated than that, and so I think I think I agree with everything everything you said in the room to this question. So overall, this seems like a pretty positive view of uh, the American public and the American political system, at least to what I uh, usually uh, hear uh, from from political science um, that that voters have uh, coherent views, um, and not very many. 
um, are, are kind of unengaged and unresponsive. Uh, and the voters that are in the middle uh, punish the candidates that uh, are, are too far on, on one side or, or the other um, and, and vote on these other characteristics that, that we might think they should take into consideration. So uh, how, how positive uh, should we uh, be about the American public uh, and, and the political system and are moderates uh, successfully play, playing this kind of balancing role in the system? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty positive on the American electorate. I think, you know, I know that it's a popular thing among among academics to kind of look down on the voters and say, look at the stupid voters. They did something I didn't like, which, of course, I mean, the voters also do things I don't like all the time. Uh, but but that's how, demo- that's, you know, democracy and liberal society means that we sometimes, you know, we have a process and we do things that we don't always like. Um, and that's better than killing each other in the streets. So um, by and large, I'm pretty happy with, you know, with the American electorate in terms of, you know, they're paying attention, they have real positions. Electoral selection and accountability seem to work more or less the way they're supposed to, theoretically. Of course, things could be better. I'm sure the electorate could be more informed than they are. I, I wish there, you know, I wish there wasn't so much anger and vitriol on social media and so forth. There are lots of things I wish were better. But by and large, um, when I look at the evidence, I often find that 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 the electoral system is working better than, than a lot of other people think. And I, and so I'm perfectly happy to defend it when the evidence goes in that direction. Um, if I think of some of the big problems in, you know, in, in American democracy today, one of the big problems that we've already been talking about quite a bit is the extent, the divergence between democratic and Republican candidates. So even though the voters are pretty modern and pretty sensible and reasonably informed and, and there's not much evidence that they're totally irrational. Like a lot of people claim, you know, I've written papers about, shark attacks and college football games and things like that. And the voters turn out to not be as irrational or incompetent as people claim. Um, nevertheless, the, the democracy, the, 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 result of the, the result of the election can only be so good as the candidates going into that election. And if none of the candidates are doing a very good job of catering to the voters in terms of policy, then there's only so much the voters can do. And I think most of the evidence suggests that voters prefer the more moderate candidates when they're given the option, but they're almost never given a moderate option. And so in some ways, that's one of the biggest puzzles in American democracy today, which is why are the why are the voters so mo- so moderate? They their vote for moderate candidates when they arise. Both parties could do better if they fielded more moderate candidates. And yet they're not they're not doing. So you are also the co-host of the Not Another Politics uh, podcast and are engaged in um, bringing political science to the public conversation. So give me a sense of where you think that is now. I know we're speaking at a time when the political science has been pretty uh, increasingly cited, at least in uh, media and public conversation. Um, but we're the monkey cage is leaving the Washington Post. Uh, Twitter is doing whatever Twitter is doing at the at the moment under uh, Elon Musk. Um, so so what is our kind of current role in the, the public conversation? And, and what do you think? What are you trying to do uh, to improve its role? Yeah, that's a good question. I uh, thanks for mentioning the podcast. So yeah, I, I am a co-host with Viola Judah and Will Howell of Not Other Politics Podcast. We've had you on as guests before. We really appreciate that, and uh, we enjoy doing it. We talk about research papers just like you do. I mean, we're, I mean, we were big fans of your show, and so and we're trying to do essentially the same kind of thing. We're trying to talk to researchers, talk about talk about research in depth. Um, we're not. We're trying to be a little bit more in depth than say your typical, you know, NPR coverage of studies that's usually just kind of at the very high level and very, you know, very credulous. We're trying to actually dig into the details and say what does the evidence really say? What can we learn from this? And sometimes we disagree with each other. So I enjoy doing that. It's fun, um, and we get we get listeners, which is nice. 
I think a lot of our listeners are other academics, which is fi actually fine with me. I'm perfectly happy with that because if we're if we're having a contribution that way by engaging academics in this conversation, I'm fine with that. And I think by and large, our our, our first our, our most important job is to is to train students and to do good research and to hope that that research turns out to have an impact. But I, I don't actually think of the public engagement part of my job as being the most important part of the job, um, which is which is. Uh, which is good for me because that's not the part that I'm good at anyway, I don't think. But um, I try not to worry too much about that. I, my hope is that if we do lots of good research, that it will it will make its way into the public conversation. Um, of course, that none of that never happens as, as much as you would like or as well as you would like it to happen. But uh, but I think I think I've accepted that. And I think I think I'm happy to just keep doing what we're doing and hope that hope that we ha make some progress. You know, I, I will say that there is, of course, always resistance among when I do talk to I talk to, you know, campaign people or policy people, you know, advocates and politicians and so forth. Um, there's always resistance to your academic findings, because, especially when they don't go with what they were hoping was true. They don't go with their agenda and so forth. But I think in the in the in the long run, you do see you do see. Um, the kinds of lessons coming from political science as, as eventually impacting the conversation. I even even in the last 10 years or so, I remember a lot of resistance from politicians and from from campaign people saying there's no way that moderation is a good idea in elections. You really have to, you know, you really you have to you have to stay to the extremes to make sure you turn out the base and so forth. And they would say these make these arguments very vehemently. And I think the amount of evidence that keeps coming in on this question has gradually changed the conversation so that you know, you're never going to get, say, AOC or Marjorie Taylor Greene to, to admit like, oh, yes, you're right. Like, it would be better if we moderated more. But I think I think more and more people are becoming aware of that. And I, I hope that in the long run that will change, you know, that will change the calculus for, for politicians and for for other policy people and so forth. And that's just one example. But I think there are lots of examples like that. Um, so. So, 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 so the long and short of it is, yeah, sometimes it doesn't go as well as you hope. And sometimes it's kind of unpleasant trying to get our research findings out there, especially if they're not what people want to hear. But my hope is that uh, in the, in the medium to longer run that, that we, we are having a positive impact. And anything you want to tout about what is next uh, for you? Sure. Yeah, I actually, um, I'm really interested in this puzzle of elite polarization. And so I actually have three working papers all related to elite polarization in some way, mostly congressional polarization. One of those papers is with Jeff Lewis, and it actually applies some of the things we learned from this paper on moderates in the public to studying members of Congress. Um, we've, we've kind of assumed that the one-dimensional model works really well for members of Congress because they, there are so many extremists in Congress, and you do predict their roll call votes and so forth really well with that one-dimensional model. But there are some exceptions to that. For example, uh, the squad in, in the House looks kind of like moderate Democrats on these standard roll call scores. And a big part of that is probably because they are kind of, they are not voting perfectly consistent with the one dimensional model. They sometimes vote like extreme liberals, which they probably are. And they sometimes engage in what, what we're calling for this project protest voting, where they sometimes, they sometimes vote no on democratic proposals that they think don't go far enough, or they want to signal their dissatisfaction with democratic party leadership. And so we are, estimating a mixture model, kind of like we did for the public, but for members of Congress, where we allow for this possibility of protest voting. And we, we, we come up with what we think are better ideological scores for members of Congress, and also estimates of who and how often people are engaging in this kind of protest voting. So that's a fun project. I have another project with Shufu on the extent to which primary elections are exacerbating congressional polarization. And then I have another project related to party leaders, 
and changing constituencies and to what extent that is explaining polarization and to what extent those things are explaining the rise in polarization over the last 50 years in Congress. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, linked on our website. If moderates are electable, why are ideologues winning? How donor opinion distorts American democracy. How political values and social influence drive polarization. Is demographic and geographic polarization overstated? And reducing polarization with shared values. Thanks to Anthony Fowler for joining me. Please check out Moderates and Partisan Intoxication or Policy Voting, and then listen in next time. Mm -hmm.